From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She was the first woman elected to U.S. Congress in Colorado, a woman who broke barriers. Today, we remember Pat Schroeder, who has died at the age of 82. Her mark on Colorado and U.S. history will not be forgotten. Then, imagine losing your home for aesthetic violations, like leaving your trash can out too long or for patches of grass that won't grow. Now, I've lived at this property since 2007, so for 15 Mm. years. And now the HOA is saying that they want to take my home. Today, how a very public fight in Denver's Green Valley Ranch community has led to protections for homeowners living in HOA communities across the entire state. And so making sure that we weren't just stopping foreclosures, but we were stopping even before they were filed. It's time to part ways with your beloved car, but you want it to go somewhere it'll truly be appreciated. So donate it to CPR. Instead of sitting and gathering dust, your tax-deductible car donation will fuel Colorado Public Radio. You love your old car. Now let it bring you the programs you love. It's so easy and convenient to donate your car at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Pat Schroeder is remembered today as a trailblazer, in many ways a woman before her time. She was the first woman elected to Congress in Colorado, serving as a U.S. representative for 24 years. Schroeder died Monday at the age of 82. We've spoken with her many times over the years, most recently with Ryan Warner, the day after Hillary Clinton lost her bid for president in 2016. Schroeder hoped Clinton would break the glass ceiling that she herself had not been able to break through when she explored her own bid for the White House nearly three decades earlier. I want to go back to the fall of 1987. This is when you decided to leave the race for president. Right. Did it feel like the country was very close to having a woman as a major party candidate or even president then? Did it feel imminent, even though you were stepping out? No, it didn't at all. In fact, at that time, we were getting polls showing that 25 percent of the people were saying they wouldn't vote for a woman for president. But the number was even higher if you asked them if they had friends that would not vote for president. And I tended to believe the second one even more. Hmm. And you just can't write off that big a section of the population. I believe it was Time Magazine did polls and found out that I would always come out third, that I did very well on all of the statistics of that I think it was honest, that I think it was hardworking, you know, all those things. But I would still come out third among them. And to me, there was no way to get over that. I had thought that after the Ferraro experience in 1984 as Vice President. Geraldine Ferraro running on the ballot. Geraldine Ferraro, when she was running as Vice President with Mondale, I thought everybody had gotten so comfortable with that. But then When I looked at it and I started traveling around the country and I realized how many parts of the country hadn't elected a woman to really anything, (laughs) they certainly weren't going to consider a woman for president. (laughs) 
Yeah, because when you ran for Congress in 72, it was still really unusual for women to even work full-time outside the House. That's right. And there were only 14 women in the House of Representatives. And half of them had taken over and gotten elected after their husband died. So you could say basically there were seven women there that had run in their own names. It was in Civic Center Park in Denver when you announced that you wouldn't continue your run for president because you were behind in recruiting delegates and fundraising. This summer, I set out to see if it was too late to mount a campaign. Not a symbolic campaign, but a winning campaign for the presidency of the United States. The image of the press conference is enduring uh, because of what happened about halfway through. This has been a very difficult decision because of the incredible encouragement you've all given me. And I know your courage, your commitment, your vision, and your vitality are the American dream. We can hear you choking up, Pat Schroeder. Uh, Right. You had to pause. Your husband came over to offer some comfort. You got some criticism for that, including from some women who said it made women look weak. Um, Oh, man, did I ever, did I ever. Actually, you know, it's interesting because what has happened during this campaign is that the Hillary campaign hasn't had time to talk to a lot of the foreign press, so they've sent them over here. And the Dutch came in and did a big, long thing, and they found the woman who had written the most scathing editorial you've ever seen about Congresswoman Schroeder has set back women in America for at least 50 years because she shed some tears and on and on and on. And they found her and and interviewed her. She now says she wished she hadn't done that and she was overreacting. But Mm. no, no, it became who could lecture me the most on that. And yet men were weeping uh, all the time. I mean, sports guys, Sununu, the president. Uh, President Reagan. So really, it it was kind of a different standard. I always said, maybe I should get Kleenex to be my corporate sponsor. And I also used to say, I'll debate anybody. I don't want anybody's finger on the button who doesn't cry. And if you Mm -hmm. want somebody's finger on the button that doesn't cry, let's debate. Did you actually keep a file, I understand, of, I of, of male politicians who cried? For a very long time, yes. I had a whole file of uh, just clipping it out. And, and remember Boehner, who was the recent Speaker of the House? John Boehner. He used to choke up constantly. And I kept waiting for these scathing things about how he had ruined men's chances for the rest of the century. (laughs) Well, and what was interesting is it was in such stark contrast to who you are. I mean, a tough woman, I mean, who got a pilot's license at 15, went through Harvard Law with a class that was almost entirely male. One of my favorite quotes of yours, uh, when you were asked how you could be a congresswoman and a mother, you said, I have a brain and a uterus. I use both. Yep. That was my, <laughs> unfortunately, may your words be tender and juicy. I had to eat them a lot. You are 76. Is that right? That's correct. Do you think you will see a female president in your lifetime, Petroner? I had always hoped, but I really worry I won't now.
Pat Schroeder speaking with Ryan Warner in 2016. Schroeder died Monday at the age of 82. She was the first woman elected to Congress in Colorado, serving from 1973 to 1997. Governor Jared Polis has known Schroeder since he was a kid. He considered her a dear family friend. He calls her a -a one-of-a-kind leader and someone who broke barriers. She fought for family leave, health care, and equal rights. We'll have more remembrances of Pat Schroeder on air and online at CPR.org. For years, homeowners associations in Colorado had the power to pursue liens and foreclosures against homeowners over unpaid fines. But last year, a very public fight in a far northeast Denver neighborhood helped change that. This was after the HOA in the Green Valley Ranch community was accused of being predatory in its practices, racking up fines against homeowners. In fact, a year ago this month, our news partner Denverite reported that the Green Valley Ranch Master HOA had voted to foreclose on the home of 60 residents. It also brought more homeowners to court in 2021 than it had in the entire decade prior. That very public fight resulted in legislation that now protects the rights of homeowners in HOA-led communities statewide. It's a topic that is very personal for homeowner Joyce Akahenda. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you. It's good to be here. Tell us what happened with you. So my issue initially started, I'd say, probably about like two years ago Mm -hmm. um, when the HOA took me to court in regard to some um, violations that they had said for things that had not been done, like yard work, um, painting of the house. And then there was something else, which I don't even remember what that was because they ended up not following through on that. But anyway, we went through litigation at that time. The violations that they were alleging at that time had already been corrected um, probably like a year or so before they took me to court. So it was clear that they either had not checked the property to see whether the violations were outstanding. And even from the communication with their lawyer um, in court, it was clear that there was not good communication between the HOA and the lawyer in regards to outstanding violations. Um, What it boiled down to anyway was because the house had already been painted, because the yard had already been fixed, it ended up that they wanted me to fill out a form to say that the color of the house that I painted, which didn't violate the HOA's covenant, did not, not, Mm -hmm. um, was approved. (laughs) <laughs> so that ended up being the end of it. And then um, they wanted, a, you know, like tens of thousands in court costs and fees. The court ruled that um, we were all responsible for our own court costs and fees, and, the, and then it was dismissed. Then all of these issues started happening in regards to the foreclosures. And so when that litigation first happened with the HOA, that's the first time I found out about this statement balance that I supposedly had with the HOA. First time. First time. Yeah. So I sent a letter saying I wanted to settle the amount. Then after the news reports came out, I sent another letter saying I wanted to settle the amount. No response from the HOA at all. Then I came home sometime in July of 22 to find a It may actually have been later than July, like maybe around September or August, um, somewhere around there, when I found a taped notice on my door with the rest of the pages ripped off saying that they were, you know, wanting to foreclose on my home. And now I've lived at this property since 2007. So for 15 Mm. years, I've been living at the HOA. And now the HOA is saying that they want to take my home. And this all started in regards to about like, you know, 
fines for, you know, a screen door blew off, the yard, painting, those types of things dating back for like over a decade that they had accumulated all these fines, then added fines on top of fines, and then added court costs. So when they filed to foreclose, they were asking at that time, they said the statement balance was around 6000 or so dollars. Most of it was attorney costs and fees. Only a and small... That's co- interesting because you are an attorney by trade. <laughs> exactly. So what helped for me as attorney was when they taped that thing on my door, I was able to recognize that it's a case number, know to go to, you know, the courts to in order to be able to access the case number to find out what actually they were alleging as part of their complaint. So when I did that, I noticed that in the complaint, you know, as a lawyer, I'm able to, you know, kind of know a little bit about the law, but this isn't my field. So it's very difficult Different to navigate. Different type of law you practice. Exactly. And so what I saw was they were saying that they had served me in regards to the foreclosure. In the statements that they were saying that they served me, they said that they had served my dad in Texas. My 80-year-old dad in Texas is the person who they served with notice in regards to the foreclosure. And they were saying— And is there any reason why they would have contacted your father specifically? No, I haven't lived in Texas in over 30 years, and they know this from the prior litigation. I only found that out from the papers, and that's when I asked my dad about it, and he said, I told him you live in Colorado, and yet they served him anyway. And so from that, I was able to notice that that was not like a correct way of serving, also because they were saying that was my usual place of abode or residence, which is one of the requirements for service. And seeing as how I never lived in Texas for like 30 years, that was just not true. I also said like my driver's, I had a Texas address on my driver's license. Again, I haven't had a Texas driver's license in probably almost 30 years because I've lived in Colorado for 17 years. I lived in Louisiana before that. Other things where they said that they had served me and the process server was saying I was at home at the time that they served me. They could hear the television. I actually had flight and Uber receipts to show I was not home. Mm. Um, I live alone, so nobody else was in my house. But by saying that they have done proper service, what they hope is that then they can request a default judgment because you then you don't show up in court. You don't know about the date. And then they get a default judgment. Then your home is foreclosed upon. And then at that period of time, it's very hard to be able to get your property back because you've already lost it at that period of time. Now, earlier you spoke about communication. In your view, clearly poor communication or lack of communication. Outside of this notice on your door, how else did you find out about any of it? That's the only way I found out about it. That's the way I was able to find out that there was this case that they had filed for foreclosure and to be able to contact the courts in order to be able to respond to that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known and my house would have been foreclosed upon and I would have lost my house. So it's safe to say you did fear that that could happen. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely feared that they were going to take my home that I had been paying on for over 17 years and paying my HOA dues because those are taken out of our mortgage. Um, But yes, I greatly feared that I was going to lose my home. So how did you go about addressing this issue? Like, who did you contact and what happened from there? Well, one of the people that I contacted was I contacted Stacy Gilmore. Um, I emailed and her. And that is the 
council member for that area. Yes, that's the council member for that area. She had appeared when there was a town hall when all of these issues were immediately occurring. Um, she sent us the resources in order to be able to like deal with these situations. I was able to do a mortgage um, application with Colorado Homeownership Coalition, which enabled me to be able to um, settle this um, issue with the HOA. But even in regards to the court case, there were a lot of problems with that in regards to communication from the lawyers of the HOA. They were not responsive um, when I would email them, and I'd have to email them more than one time in order to get a response from them. And then there were also issues in regards to, like, threats about attorney costs and fees and just the way they just, like, doubled um, the attorney costs and fees. I mean, my fees initially, like I told you, this started out at the start of the litigation. It was, like, around $5,000 or $6,000. Then in November, it went up to $10,000. Then December, it went up to $12,000. Then it went up to $14,000. Um, then it was $16,000. And then overnight between when I asked her for a payoff amount and she said it was 16000 overnight between that and our mediation um, time, it went up another 1000 to $17,000. And this is all without any substantive litigation taking place. So it's clear that there is kind of a aggravation of attorney fees, meaning that they just kind of you know, they kind of like pad the legal fees on and in the hopes that nobody is going to be scrutinizing what they're asking for in regards to legal fees and to intimidate you to back down to just do what they're requesting. Most HOAs would argue that they find homeowners in an effort to keep the community nice and to maintain property values. What's your response to that? What I would say is that You know, when people are afraid that they're going to lose their home, they don't want to move to that community. I chose Green Valley Ranch because it was a diverse community. But I know even talking to my neighbors, people are fearful of living in that community because they may lose their home. And that decreases property values. Mm. Um, When people don't feel that the community is a place that they want to live that hurts our ability to have people buy homes. And so then instead what you have is you have investors who are buying homes who don't really care about the community that is living out there. So Joyce, what is the status of your home now? I will say in my case, the court asked if we wanted to get into voluntary mediation immediately. I was able to settle the amount and we were able to file a stipulated motion to dismiss. That was Joyce Akahenda, who lives in the Green Valley Ranch community in Northeast Denver. We should note that the attorney's office that the Green Valley Ranch Master HOA directed us to did not respond to repeated requests for comment. We're also speaking with Denver City Councilwoman Stacy Gilmore, who represents that community. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, we heard Joyce's story and it had a lot of twists and turns. What are some of the other stories that you heard that helped you get involved? Uh, So many. Every story has its own twists and turns because it's people's lives and it's their families. And first, um, Joyce, I am so sorry that that happened to you. The pain and stress and trauma of just trying to get an answer and trying to solve something and trying to be done with it. 
it went on for years, and I can yeah. only imagine the stress uh, to you and your 80-year-old father getting served paperwork. I, I mean, just it's atrocious. And, you know, heard stories about uh, early on in the pandemic when we were asked to stay at home, uh, a homeowner getting a violation notice that the blinds in their front windows were not correct. And so the homeowner thinking, well, do I violate the governor's stay-at-home order to try to go to Home Depot to buy these blinds? Do I stay at home? Just mm. the absurdity of some of these uh, fines and fees that have been levied against homeowners. And, you know, people choose to live in the far northeast and Green Valley Ranch because it is a diverse supportive community. And we need to have HOAs and property management companies that understand that and prioritize that instead of, it seems like in a lot of occurrences from what I've heard, are more so heavy-handed in the way that they levy fines. It's very uh, subjective. It's whoever you get out there. Um, if you're going to get fines, um, it, it needs to be regulated uh, at a statewide level. And we need requirements of property managers to have either licensing or ongoing education so that we're not replicating housing discrimination uh, in a different way, shape, or form through these HOAs. So speaking of that, the state legislature eventually got involved here, and a measure was passed limiting the power of HOAs in Colorado in terms of the threat of foreclosure. On June 3, 2022, Governor Jared Polis signed HB 22-1137 into law. Now, this law went into effect last August, it prohibits HOAs in Colorado from seeking foreclosure against homeowners based solely on fines for violating community rules. What sense have you gotten about how it's working? So we're continuing to monitor what it looks like uh, for us in Denver. And, you know, before this was signed into law, we still did have properties that were already in that foreclosure process. And there isn't a provision in the bill that those properties would be grandfathered in. Mm. Um, and so we do have um, some foreclosures that are still in the process. And it's very, very difficult to get a, a property out of the foreclosure process. Uh, and so we're continuing to monitor that very closely. After the bill was signed and after the Denver foreclosure notice bill was signed, we oh, yeah, saw explain, a pause explain that. a explain, little bit. Yeah. yeah. So before, so, um, you know, I've lived out in the far Northeast for going on 30 years. And so there has been ongoing, like, you know, if you want to change the color of your house, you have to submit the paint samples, you have to get those approved, you have to paint your shed, corresponding colors, et cetera, et cetera, for the curb appeal. There are always disputes. And, um, you know, from talking with disgruntled homeowners around, we want to do away with the HOA, we don't want the property management anymore, that's really hard because that is 
part of your mortgage and that's part of the debt that that community carries for the build-out of the water, sewer, curb, gutter, roadways, et cetera, to even build Green Valley Ranch. And so, um, you know, knew that there were disgruntled folks um, from long ago, and we were always, always at the city and county of Denver preempted. We could not do any legislation to further manage these um, HOAs, um, or property management companies because the state had the authority to do that. And so, um, you know, when this all came to fruition and after that March 12th meeting, I immediately did a press release and asked the attorney general and the governor to step in and help because I could just see this was a big train coming down and we needed to get some high-level folks such as Phil Weiser and the attorney general's office to get involved and investigate this. But so prior to HB 1137, which was passed, that greatly limits what they can impose as far as fines and fees, after that was passed, we saw a narrow window of opportunity in the city. And I have to commend my staff and our legislative staff. We turned around a bill in about 45 days that is an HOA foreclosure notice bill. So on top of everything that the state mandated, we at the city and county of Denver, my bill further mandates that before an HOA can even file the foreclosure paperwork, 30 days prior to them trying to file it, they must provide to the homeowner, the property owner, their rights and resources. And it has to be in writing. There has to be notice that it was received by the homeowner. These are your rights and resources. And Joyce will be familiar with what that looks like because it was many of the same organizations, nonprofits that came to the far Northeast when we were having these issues. But, you know, you need a housing counselor. You need pro bono legal representation. You need many times a lawyer to call your mortgage company and say, I am acting as a liaison here. This individual is about to lose their house. They've been a good customer of yours for 17 years. We would think that you want to step in and help, you know, alleviate this issue. And so making sure that we weren't just stopping foreclosures, but we were stopping even before they were filed and giving people those rights and resources because not everybody has a legal background like Joyce. And even some of the terminology that she was using, <laughs> I'm like, Yep, I would need somebody to probably explain <laughs> that to me. And and what does that mean exactly? And, you know, what is our value in a city? Do we want to have people housed, have diversity in our neighborhoods, and especially for black and brown families? Home ownership is one of those only ways to build generational wealth. And we need to start talking about this from a high level instead of, did your screen door blow off? What blinds do you have in the front? Or do you have weeds in your front yard? Now, have there been any steps to, I guess, create a way for people to get, I mean, just kind of almost neighborly assistance with these issues? Um, you know, some people just know about that kind of thing. Is there any way that people are connecting on that? 
we're, we're trying to set that up. A lot of times, you know, once you say, oh, go with this landscaper, there's a certain amount of risk that you put yourself in too. And so what is that vetting process? Are landscaping or, you know, companies that could help with improvements of a property, um, are they in good standing with the Secretary of State's office? Um, is there a clearinghouse that we in the city can help manage? What does that look like? And so those are those conversations because, you know, um, snow removal becomes an issue as well. And we want people to stay in our community because that's what stabilizes the neighborhood instead of kind of a a rotation of folks in and out. And we've got a lot of folks that um, maybe bought their first home in the Montbello community and then the parents moved to Green Valley Ranch because there was an HOA and there was property management that helps out with clearing some of the walkways, takes care of common areas, et cetera, but never to the thought that um, when maybe one of their parents passed away and your mom is a widow and has trouble taking the trash cans up from the curb and putting them behind the fence, which is what many people got fines and fees about, how are we talking about this in a different way, especially after what we saw with the pandemic? And what are our priorities? There are a lot of people listening to us today who don't live in Green Valley Ranch. And I could imagine some of them saying, well, I have to paint my house a certain color and I can't just change things. What's different here in your view? Uh, I I think what happened uh, in this situation is there were a lot of variables that lined up. One, March of 2020 declared a pandemic. Mm. Uh, There was a lot of conversation, a lot of media about um, moratoriums on rent and moratoriums that were put into place. I think some um, homeowners might have thought that there was a moratorium on paying some of these fines and fees, that's logical. But where I want to But that did not apply to homeowners. It was to renters. It was to renters, exactly. And, you know, where's the professionalism and the industry um, structure that you've got to notice people? You need to let them know, like, if they want to receive their notices via text messaging, then do text messaging so people know what's going on. What are those newsletters that an HOA could put out? I mean, they're very clear what your fines and fees when it's racked up in the multiple thousands. They can get you that info right away. Well, where are the rights and resources of a homeowner that every property has the potential to have a lien put on it? What is a lien? What's that mean? How do you maintain um, good standing with your HOA, et cetera? So there needs to be a lot of ongoing education um, as well. And then we had an HOA that um, was very, very aggressive in what they were looking to do. And so I think it was a variety of items that kind of came together. But I'm glad that we've got homeowners such as Joyce that are willing to share a really, really sensitive, traumatic experience. Because if you all think about how important your homes were, your apartment was during the pandemic, 
it was your safe space. It was where you could wash your hands. You could wash your clothes. And breathe. Right. (laughs) You could prepare your food. I mean, those are very important. And so I appreciate homeowners like Joyce stepping forward because we need to continue to share these stories to put that pressure at the state level to mandate more laws in how these organizations operate. Joyce, how does the Green Valley Ranch situation differ for you? Well, I think um, one of the things, we just celebrated the Martin Luther King holiday, and what Martin Luther King said was, what affects one directly affects um, all indirectly. When people who are housed become unhoused, that becomes a burden on the whole city, and that um, turns into further complications for everyone Um, in regards to um, the financial implications for all of us as a city when that happens. So while it may not be, um, it may be somebody outside the Green Valley Ranch community, they should care about what's happening in the Green Valley Ranch community. Um, And as um, Stacey Gilmore said, it's like the law firm representing the Green Valley Ranch was very, very aggressive. Um, It wasn't like, you know, other people may have a homeowners association where it's just a couple of volunteers. It's your neighbors, you know, who are just trying to make sure everybody's property is kept up. That's not the situation in Green Valley Ranch. This is more of like a business corporation type of nonprofit organization. And so the firm that they have representing them is very aggressive in their approach and not really looking to, like, mediate and settle situations with the homeowners. And we know with businesses, the way to get businesses to behave properly is either through regulation, government regulation, or it's because they want good customer service, so they want repeat um, customers. But when you have an organization which has a monopoly, then, you know, they don't really have an incentive to improve um, behavior for the people who live in that community. And we don't have anybody else that we can deal with. So that's another aspect of it as well. Well, Councilwoman, in your view, how does this law affect all Coloradans who live in communities governed by HOAs? And What kind of feedback have you gotten from residents in Green Valley Ranch and outside of Green Valley Ranch about this law? Uh, Well, because this is a state law, it will affect uh, every property owner that lives within a homeowners association uh, governed area. And so, you know, when you're purchasing your home, Please make sure to ask your real estate agent, your mortgage company, et cetera, et cetera. Are there any additional covenants or deeds that Mm. are on my property? Am I buying into a homeowners association? That is something you need to know because, one— you're going to have added, um, you know, property taxes most likely um, because that's how the the subdivision got built um, was through additional property taxes. What does that look like so that you're fully aware? And then, you know, it, it mandates statewide that HOAs can't begin to rack up thousands and thousands of dollars um, against a homeowner. It caps the fees that can be imposed to $50 per day or $500 total, Mm. whichever is the lesser. 
And then at that point, there's additional steps that need to be taken. And so we really wanted to cap it at that $500 level so that it doesn't get into the multiple thousands because that's something that we also found um, – we were just trying to find pots of money within the state government that were maybe American Rescue Plan, um, you know, COVID recovery dollars that were provided that we could use to pay off some of these fines and fees to keep people housed. And that was the use of it. But, you know, it will help ratchet down the exorbitant fines and fees. It will help with the notification because it's very specific as to the notification. And so this should make a difference um, across the state. What I would like to see as well is that the state legislature perhaps incorporates in the HOA foreclosure notice bill that we did in Denver and that they add that provision in the statewide bill that before an HOA can even initiate the foreclosure paperwork, they've got to provide the homeowner at least 30 days before their rights and resources so that that property owner can then call Denver Metro Fair Housing and say, I need a housing counselor, I need pro bono legal support because I got this notice I don't know what's going on. I need somebody to help me. And so I would like the state to adopt that in there because I think it's an important provision. We can't make the assumption that everybody is a housing expert. Um, we want to provide that education to make sure that we're keeping people housed. Joyce, any tips you want to share for homeowners? Um, the tips that I would suggest is just to become familiar with the new law and to become familiar with your rights. And um, to reach out and get the resources from these housing organizations um, that can explain the law to you. Because what the what the HOA's lawyer tells you is not generally <laughs> necessarily what is in your favor or what your rights are. Um, the other thing that I would say is, you know, it it's difficult to do, but keep as much documentation as you can. Um you know, keep your receipts, keep your pictures, and make sure that when you do communicate with the HOA, you're communicating in writing so that you have proof of the communications that you have done with the HOA. Um, you know, one of the things that I would like to see is I would like to see the state um, collecting demographic information in regards to what is happening in these communities. Because anecdotally, we know Green Valley Ranch is a diverse community, and this is affecting um, primarily um, commun people of color. But we don't have the data necessarily to back it up. And so I think collecting that type of demographic information um, when it comes to um, foreclosures is something that is really important. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Joyce Akahenda is a homeowner in Denver's Green Valley Ranch community who fought her HOA from foreclosing on her home. Stacey Gilmore represents District 11 on the Denver City Council. Gilmore is up for re-election in her district but is running unopposed. We also want to note that the attorney's office that the Green Valley Ranch Master HOA directed us to did not respond to repeated requests for comment. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma 
brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. I hope that you find terra firma a place where you're not being pulled away, but pulled to a few minutes to connect to a story, to a landscape, and to yourself. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. Ballots for the Denver election should start arriving any day now. Voters will decide three issues, pick a city council, and a new mayor. As the state's capital, the mayor has the power to influence issues well beyond the city and county limits, as we just heard even HOAs. Seven of the mayoral candidates took part in a forum hosted by our sister publication, Denverite, in conjunction with the nonprofit's focus on underserved communities. CPR's Nathan Heffel and May Ortega moderated. Candidates had a fixed amount of time to answer and two chances to rebut. Here's an excerpt. Behavioral health, substance abuse, and adequate health care are issues amongst Denver's residents, both housed and unhoused. How should the city address these issues? And we'll start with Kelly Bruff. Yeah, I think Children's Hospital has declared a state of emergency for our youth in terms of mental health. Um, and so this has to be a priority. Uh, but that it's also clear to me, uh, even with dedicated revenue streams, we're not able to address the issues and provide the services that our families so desperately need. I would focus on bringing together public, private, and nonprofit sectors to really do this work and partnering in a way that we haven't really done in our past, including the city thinking about its own budget, not just dedicated revenue streams, but its own budget that it should allocate toward nonprofits who do this work on the ground every single day supporting our communities. I also think there's the opportunity to engage the private sector and employers and how they think about this work and the support and, and dollars they provide to, uh, for nonprofits who are serving often their employees as well. Thank you. Ms. Debbie Ortega. Access to health care is important, and mental health is absolutely part of that health care. Um, as you know, we have a, a dedicated funding stream paid for by the taxpayers. Um, this is the Caring for Denver Fund. I think we have to have accountability in the contracts that we have. When we have the disparity where one particular contract, the CEO makes almost a million dollars, and in 2019, they had $41 million in reserves. When we have people dying on our streets and struggling with mental health issues, this is where I want to hold accountable the providers that we have. We also have many people in our community who may have multiple um, case managers with different programs. And I think having unique identifier numbers where people can talk to each other and address the issues and the needs, especially of our youth. I also want to mention the Second Wind Fund, which is another program that works within our schools and has been successful. They have a 100% track record in preventing suicides among time. our kids. Thank you. As someone with lived experience on this issue, particularly I mentioned my sister, uh, the reason why we created Caring for Denver, which no, is not in the city, it's an independent foundation that I'm now the chair of that I created, um, was because the city of Denver said that mental health and substance misuse was not a major issue for the city to address. Okay? And so I went to the ballot and I asked Denver voters if they agreed. 70% of Denver voters said we will step up for people, our friends, our neighbors, ourselves, that need more access to mental health and substance misuse supports. We stood in that gap. And immediately, our first thing that we funded was the STAR program that everyone seems to tout today. But if it wasn't for caring for Denver stepping in, it would never have happened. 
And then we talk about Servicio de la Raza. Caring for Denver has funded millions of dollars into that organization because we know, and many other organizations here, because we know that the services are best delivered by people who look like the communities they're serving. And so not only are we building out the infrastructure, we're supporting the people who are doing the work now. But what about if the city could step up and do that too? What about if we didn't need our own taxpayer-funded uh, situation? Instead, Thank the city said, time. we will partner as well. Thank you, Ms. Harry. Mike Johnston. Thank you. And Thank you, Leslie, for that work. It was very important. Um, uh, the city's better off because of it, so thank you for doing that. Um, I, I had two th comments I would add. One is about youth, and one is about adults. I think we know there is a dramatic crisis for adolescents in our city right now with mental health. See it in all over our families. Uh, and we know the city has not done their job to support our kids and our school districts in providing those services, and we've not done our job to support Denver Health in doing that. So I would expand our funding of Denver Health so we can actually make sure we have mental health counselors in all of our high schools, and we don't have wait lists for kids who are at risk of suicide which cannot be our answer. Uh, uh, so I think that's going to be the most important. The second is we also know we have, uh, we have adults who have serious needs for access to addiction support and to mental health treatment and are not able to get access to that kind of inpatient support. They're in a revolving door from going to, the, you know, being on the streets to prison to emergency rooms and back and forth and not getting healthy. That's why I've supported taking two units of the county jail and closing them and transforming them, one into an inpatient mental health facility for people that need longer-term care and one into addiction-based services for folks that need longer-term treatment in those contexts because we need more beds and more supports and more resources there. Thank you. Thank you. Chris Hansen. Right. Thank you. Uh, super vital that we figure out a sustainable way to do this in Denver. And right now, unfortunately, we don't have that. And, I'm, and you know, to have Denver Health ask this question tells you a lot because I had a chance to just visit with Denver Health. They are $60 million shortfall this year, conservative estimate. Uncompensated care from both folks in Denver, but a huge number of folks outside of Denver are creating a situation where our major institutions like WellPower and Denver Health do not have financial sustainability. And we just put some more money in from the state. We'll continue to advocate for that. But it is so vital that we build a, a financial model that works because we are going to continue to fall behind if that's not the case. And to have somebody like Denver Health have to make giant cuts is just going to put massive amount of pressure on the folks who need the help the most. Denver Health is the emergency room for this city. It is the first point of contact for many of the folks who need mental health and addiction support. We have to shore up Denver Health, make it sustainable, or the city cannot work. And that's time. Thank you. Thank you. Kwame Spearman. So, so Lisa and I were actually born here. And I say that because Colorado is number one for suicide for people who are under the age of 18. Mental health is personal to me as a native. And what we've got to do is a few things. One, I agree with everything Leslie said. The city needs a mandate on addressing these types of services. We talk about wraparound services for unhoused. We need to have that same mentality in our neighborhoods so people, particularly black and brown people, can get the help that they need. We also have an opportunity to lead the nation on this. We just past psilocybin, and we need to think critically on alternative methods to fix people's mental health. And I think we've got a huge opportunity to do that. We need to make sure the mayor embraces that and accelerates those mental health facilities as quickly as we can. The other thing we've got to do is we've got to help our unhoused neighbors deal with this. We've got to have both voluntary and involuntary help on this issue. If someone is not willing to confront their mental health demons that are living on the street, I think we as a city should put them in a situation where we can give them the care and compassion they need because mental health and that's is Thank you. important. Lisa Calderon. So what Mike talked about he wants to do in jails, I've already done. 
uh, as the uh, executive director of the Community Reentry Project, I made sure that we had a women's committee for gender and cultural responsiveness for how we treat women in the jail. Help to design, redesign a facility for women to be responsive to their needs. Um, the wrote plans uh, for the jail uh, with the independent monitor, so if we're gonna throw out names of endorsement, former independent monitor Nick Mitchell, uh, who's endorsing me, about how we can create more, if people had to be there, how we could be more responsive because about 40% of jail inmates have undiagnosed um, traumatic brain injuries. So trauma healing uh, is, needs to be part of the plan. And we can look at other countries like Finland um, who really uh, looks, at, looks at housing as healing and healthcare. Thank you. Thank you. An excerpt from The People's Forum, produced by Denverite and moderated by CPR's Nathan Heffel and May Ortega. Watch the entire debate at CPR.org mayor and check out our voter guide at denverite.com. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.